They'll do a money grab. They'll they'll accept a client, sell a product or service that is not in line with what they really want. And guess what happens? You end up stuck in that area. The startup is easier on the blank sheet of paper. The existing business is harder. It just takes a longer time to unravel. But if you decide that going forward, your ideal customer or client looks like this, then the hard bit is living up to the rule. All right. So Rob Nixon, listen, uh, before I get started, because I definitely want to hear and share your story. I know your story, but I think it's super valuable for so many people to hear it. It's inspiring and challenging and there's such good content in there. Anyway, before I kick off with that, I just want to recognize you for a moment and and share with the audience that, you know, for me, you were my first coach in business. I remember back to When I first started my practice, I remember trying to track Rob down in the Australian time zone because that's always been our biggest challenge is that uh, we're on the opposite sides of the world, but yet here we are. And I remember chasing him down and said, well, whenever you come to North America, like whatever date that is, you let me know and I will be there. And I remember you, you let me know. I flew down to Vegas and every room in the entire conference that had a breakout room was emptied because everybody had to hear what you had to say. And you know what, you have you have transformed the way I think. You have been the greatest influence in my professional career. So I appreciate you so much. I just wanna say that up front. But for the rest of the uh, community and the audiences listening, maybe tell the story of Rob Nixon, how you got started and where everything uh, where everything got to now. Well, Bob, before we get to that, I uh, just wanted to say that uh, many people in my career have uh, attended things, read things or whatever, but you implement stuff, right? You you get things done. And w- when I met you, you were a minnow of an accounting firm, uh, just a minnow. And we worked together for a couple of years and now, you know, the, the future is very bright for Goldrun Associates. So, mate... Uh, uh, not everyone implements like you, so I just want to start with that. So, mate, well done you. It's uh, really cool. I appreciate that. All righty. You want to, you want to tell, want me to tell a story? Yeah, tell a story. Okay, cool. I could listen to you all day, so, you know, take it away. All right. So, first of all, um, for those that haven't picked up my accent, I'm Australian, uh, born in New Zealand, moved to Australia in 1979. I'm 54 years old right now. Uh, age of 16, dropped out of school, didn't like school much, but I was heavily into sport. I was actually an archer. So I was Australian archery champion twice uh, in the Australian team, all that sort of stuff. So from a very early age, I was um, committed to goal setting and winning. Uh, I only do things that I'm going to win. I'll pull out of a market or whatever if I'm not going to win. There's no point being number two. So I had that from the age of 14 when I started winning, uh, particularly at archery. Uh, So I left school at 16 in country New South Wales. I don't know where your audience is going to be, Bob, probably globally. But um, uh, we were uh, five hours west of Sydney, uh, literally on the edge of the outback. So dust, flies, heat. It was quite horrible, quite frankly, right? <laughs> but that's where I grew up. That's when I went to school. Anyway, so number of jobs after school, a couple of little entre- entrepreneurial flings. And then I was blessed in, in late 93 of uh, meeting a guy who... Uh, asked me to present so I was always I, I started getting into personal development from the age of 17 you know, reading books um, whatever texts I could get I didn't have a formal education so I figured I'm going to self self-learn so I read about business read about personal development anyway I was uh, learning these um, uh, training programs one on telephone selling one on customer service and this guy called Gary says 
can you present this sales training program? I'm 24 years old, right? To a retail auto parts store. And I got, uh, sure, I'll do that, right? I would just wing it, you know, as you're doing. Absolutely full of it even back then. And uh, anyway, so I present this uh, little session for four and a half hours. I got paid $855 and I thought, wow, that is amazing. I'm going to start doing this. So I start doing these seminars, got no idea what that means. And then I create a seminar company. Bear in mind, the town has got 35,000 people in it. It services about a three-hour radius with 150,000 people. We're in the middle of nowhere, right, basically. But I'm in the seminar business. And so I decide to run a seminar business, got no idea about that, going broken a million miles an hour, you know, full-on you know, full on TV ads, uh, come to my seminar, I'm really awesome, dial this number type thing. It's so bad, right? But we're having to go. Uh, and I was running these seminars, big seminar, eight people. <laughs> eight people in the pub. <laughs> and you know how I've evolved since then, Bob. So you go back and you imagine... A public seminar on customer service with eight people in the pub. Anyway, it was a disaster. <laughs> and I meet this guy called Ellis, Ellis Ryan. And he says, I'm an accountant. And I live in a little town called Canamble. I knew Canamble, about two and a half hours north of it, where I was. It was a 3,000 person town. It was a two accountants town. He said, this seminar is awesome. Will you come to my town and do this seminar for my clients? I said, sure. And I knew, because I studied marketing, I knew the leverage of, you know, if someone who's got the database promotes someone else, there's a high, higher degree of propensity of attendance or whatever, or response. So I said, how many clients you got, Ellis? He says, 126. So here we go. And I said, righto, here's how it's going to work. I will control the marketing. And Bob, this, I look back, how ballsy this was, right? I said, I want three things from you, Ellis. I want your database, I want your letterhead, and I want your signature. I'm going to recreate his letterhead, recreate his signature, and I'm going to mail from my postage stamp to his database and control the marketing. It worked. 56 people turned up to the services club, and I made a profit of two and a half grand. I thought, wow, these accountants can fill a room, but I can't. I'm going to accountants, and that was May 1994, and I haven't done any business with anyone else other than accounting firms in the last nearly 30 years with a chance meeting. So off I go. Right, we're still in the seminar business, and I start cold calling accountants. We'll do this cool seminar for you. I'll, I'll take all the risk. I'll take the profit. You'll get the praise. We had, back then, now a big four, but it was a big eight accounting firm, send me their entire database, their letterhead, and the partner's signature. Can you believe that, Bob? <laughs> it's just... Oh, my God. <laughs> Like, I'm starting to sweat just thinking about it. The crown jewels of an accounting firm, right? Oh, man. So, um, you know, I think a lesson in that is, you know, you've just got to ask, you don't get. You keep asking. 100%. So, accountant seminars initially. Then I got picked up by a company called Results Accountant Systems as an employee, which was awesome. The next six years, I traveled the world helping accounting firms through as an employee because the seminar business was toast that didn't work right <laughs> stupid business um helping accountants well with three thousand people in one town how many how many conferences can you do with one of the accountants you know <laughs> to give you an idea how naive i was i even moved location 150 kilometers closer to sydney to widen my reach right <laughs> it's just ridiculous <laughs> and then within six months i'm traveling the world so you know uh, who would have thought so 
I joined a company, and we were a training, consulting, and um, content company in my 20s, still absorbed in lifelong learning, absorbed in books, absorbed in education. And I got the opportunity to travel the world in my 20s, training accountants. Then I ended up running that business in Australasia. We grew that business to $25 million and in 2000, I exited. So that was a wild ride. And you know, there's parts of your career where you go, wow, that was so fundamentally seminal to my the rest of the career as a foundation. And that, that was amazing. You know, we, we worked with tens of thousands of accountants all over the world, grew a big business, and I was right in the thick of it as in the leadership team. So that was huge learning. But that business got sold. There's a whole story around the turnaround. We're not going to get there. Uh, that business got sold. I, I did a big turnaround to that company in my, when I was 29 and got sold. So what do you do? Well, I decide I got headhunted, would you believe, for a very short project from a public company. I'm only 30 now. And that was about acquiring accounting firms. So now I'm in the M&A world, right? So we acquired some firms, got out of that one. That, that was never going to work. I thought, right, I've got some research here. Uh, I'm going to start a, um, a software company. I, I had no business to be in a software company in 2001, but decided to. We raised capital of just over a million dollars really fast. I didn't know what I was doing. But what I did realize after four years, that business wasn't for me. It was a, a boring business. Uh, it was a technical business. Uh, the people were boring. The product was boring. So I, um, as part of my quest for lifelong learning, I did this test. It was called Wealth Dynamics. And I got this report, and the report was on my desk at like 5 a.m. in the morning at a call of Chicago. I was trying to sell my software to Chicago. And I looked at this report. Chicago meeting didn't go so well. You know, I've got the big fat knot now. And, and I've gone, this report spoke to me. And so I waited a couple of hours, called my business partner up and said, uh, I'm out of here. I oh, know, sorry, I said, I need to come visit you. He said, what for? I said, uh, I'll, I'll tell you when I see him. And... Uh, I got to, to his place. I said, I'm leaving. He said, you can't leave. You're the founder. You're the shareholder, big shareholder. No, I'm leaving. And he said, when? I said, today. He said, you can't leave today. I said, I'm leaving today. Anyway, I left within two weeks because I, I, I trusted that what I was was not matched to the business. Uh, and that was really important. And so I decided that I was going to start a coaching company to accounting firms in Australia only. We're not in the US. I've been in the US many times uh, through the employee company and started a, a coaching company. And in, in the end, we end up coaching. There's In, in Australia and New Zealand for accounting firms, there's 12,000. There's 10,000 in Australia, 2,000 in New Zealand. We did business with 4,000 of them, massive penetration, coached 800 of them just in Australia and New Zealand. We, we were so dominant for a long, long period of time that you know we just we, we had coaching rooms and coaches and we're you know, Australia, New Zealand, you're, you're, in, you're in Canada, Bob, you know, big country, America, big country in your doorstep, lots of everything. We're tiny, right? But we dominated because we had great marketing, great sales, great people and a great product. And, and, and you need that if you're going to be successful. We were selling uh, an idea, we we're selling hope, we we're selling, you know, a business improvement for accountants. And so I grew that business over a number of years and a great lifestyle. And then in about 2000, and, oh, we were going to be acquired, that's right. And so a big uh, international company was going to acquire us. And, and they dangled a number, which the number looked pretty good. And we get down to the first part of due diligence. And they said, we like everything you've got, but we don't like your coaching business. I said, well, that's where all the money is. And they said, yeah. And I tried to replicate it, tried to license it. We had a franchise system at one stage. You know, lots of lots of methods to scale it. And they said, we can't scale that business. I said, yeah, neither can we. Uh, so... 
<laughs> so the, the deal ultimately fell over, but I got a taste of, because we had some software, uh, some uh, so, uh, the previous company I sold out of, um, we built some bits of software, and we got a taste for software valuations in 2012. And so we thought, well, you know, they like that, but wasn't really a revenue line. So out of thin air, we created some software and we decided to market it and the, and the accountants loved it. Um, and we'd started off with, you know, bullets before the missiles and, you know, and then got a taste of, you know what, we're, we're going to go all in on this software thing. Um, we're going to turn the human-based services coaching business with content into a software and content business. And so consequently, uh, we were going fast, right? Uh, had to raise some capital end up raising, uh, well, first of all, I put in at a business partner, we were already 20, we, it, between us put in 6 million, so 4.8 of mine, 1.2 of his. Then we raised uh, 12 million, so we're 18 million in uh, to create a business. And this business was going bananas. It was, we were growing at 8 to 10% a month, so we were doubling every eight months. We did some ac two acquisitions. We opened up in the UK, uh, office in initially San Francisco, then San Diego, in the Philippines and Australia, joint venture in Sweden, joint venture in Finland. This in the space of two years. <laughs> so it was crazy. And it was fast, really, really fast. Had 196 shareholders by the time we raised the capital. We're an unlisted public company with a um, half of nine figure valuation. I think that's right, thereabouts. And we were on this trajectory. And so everything is busy, everything is going super, super fast. The clients around the world loved the product. It was an analytical product linked into cloud accounting so the accountants could get visibility on their clients, predictive analytics. Uh, it was really cool, right? But with bigger business comes complexity. And I was diluted right down from 80% to 35. With bigger business comes complexity. And complexity means governance. You know, we're a listed public company. I had to get a chairman, CEO, board of directors, all this governance, right? Anyway, push comes to shove. And the board and I have a fight. And and I wanted one thing, they want another. And I've said, well, F you. And they said, well, how about you F off? And so uh, in April 2000, initially April, then May, and finalized 2018, I got kicked out of my own uh, company that I founded. Uh, still with the equity, but now no, uh, no business. Uh, and on top of that, a one-year global restraint. Now, not a 150-kilometer, 100-mile restraint, a one-year global restraint. I couldn't poach existing clients, past prospects, team members, clients, any clients at all, couldn't compete on product, couldn't compete on service, and on top of that, all of my IP I developed over the last 20-something years was owned by the company. So I've exited with a global restraint uh, which was tight, and I honoured that to the to the day. I exited with all my content not owned by me, so I couldn't use that. I exited with you know great stories, case studies, couldn't use those, and no business at all. So, and Bob, you were part of that little exit because I remember just I was in a couple of ways. One, I was a shareholder of that company, uh, and two, uh, I was also on all of those lists. I think. <laughs> That's right, you were. Look, when you when you turn away a million dollars worth of new revenue in the first ninety days, please, Rob, can you work with us? Sorry, I can't work with you. And, uh, and as a sales guy, that's hard work to turn away a million dollars worth of revenue in ninety days, the first ninety days of business. So 
Yeah, so that that takes us up to before some even more cool stuff happens. And and Bob, for time, let's not unpack the detail of the exit. Hassan to say to be kicked out of the company that you founded by your business partner and mate of twenty years plus the board was quite a demoralizing, you know, angry period in my life. Uh, brutal. It was brutal. Yeah, yeah. But then things went well. Well, then so so talk about this because I think. You know, for a couple of reasons. One, I think your entire story is is super cool, but I I would focus on that period of a year where you dealt with so much adversity, so much challenge, but what you had was everything you've learned. Maybe you couldn't share, you know, case studies, connections, but everything you learned over your entire career you brought with you. So walk us through what happened in the next, I don't know, 90 days after your company un- unfoundedly kicked you out? Yeah. So first things first, the state I was in, because I was all on black, right? We had no, I had no business, had a business previously, still had the equity in that business, but and all the, all the business assets were locked up over there. As my wife said, all of your shit was unraveled in one go. Right, which is really interesting. So what I was presented with was a complete blank sheet of paper. I was presented with a blank sheet of paper for the first time in my business career. And this is really, really important before we get into what I did, right? Um, So what I did business-wise is piece that I'm going to take you through. So if you think about business, you know, unless you're a complete clean startup and even, you know, startups just get busy and they have collect baggage, systems, people, clients, whatever, right? All my baggage was gone and I had truly a blank sheet of paper. So what I did, and this is the order of what I did before I got started in the new business five and a half years ago. Number one, and this is six points to this. Number one, I looked at my bucket list, my list of lifelong things and achievements I wanted to do. Then I thought, okay, what I'm going to do here is change the entire thought pattern of me. Previously, I was wrapped up in the whole massive transformational purpose, change the world through accountants, change everyone else's world, right? And and because I had a big plan, a big plan of get all these accountants, get their clients, push data and content through every accounting firm, influence their client base. We get 10,000 accounting firms. We get, you know, 100, 100 clients each. We've changed a million businesses, right? I was on that track. When I got exited with my blank sheet of paper, I really started to think about, well, what is it that I want? And I realized I didn't want to change the world. I want to change my world. And I want to change the world of, when I say the world, I want to change the world of a small few of clients, I'd had the big offices, big team, big valuations, big travel, big client base, big everything, right? And so what I did, look at my bucket list and said, you know what? I'm going to redesign my business to suit my bucket list, to suit me with what I want to achieve in my life. And I think that's number one where it starts. Number one, what is, and there's some bit of content here, Bob, for your listeners and viewers, I believe it starts with what you want out of life. Then business should be fuel for your life, not your life. The business should fuel your life. 
we, as we know, and, and we can talk to the story, I nearly died two years ago, so that changes things again. You, you get a different perspective that we're not here for a long time. So let's design a business that suits what we want to achieve in life. Step one. Step two. Then, then I asked myself five questions that I've filled on my blank sheet of paper. This took me about four hours. Question one. Right, I'm going to start a business. Number one, what do I want my business life to look like? My working life, how will I be working in this business? What will I be doing? What type of work? What type of clients will I serve? How much will I work? You know, business life. For example, if I'm traveling, a business life. By the way, I've, I've got 32000 a month in debt repayments at this point in time. <laughs> so I'm up, up to the here. All assets over there, I got zero. But you need some cash. <laughs> I need some cash, right? But I just didn't need jerk into the business. I didn't need jerk it. I want my business life, all right? I want, if I'm traveling, I want a driver at each end. I want to be front of plane. Uh, we set a rule that accommodation whilst away must be equal or better than what we're like at home. We're not going to live in ruddy hotels. Business life. I'm only going to work for 20% of the year. 73 days maximum worked, right? So this is before I've got any income. So question one was, what do I want my business life to look like? Question two, what do I want my numbers to be? And so I wrote down 64 clients max. I wrote down a revenue number. I wrote down a profit number, accounts receivable number, zero, zero accounts receivable. I wrote down one location not multiple locations. In fact, when we get to culture, it was no location. I'll talk about that in a minute, right? So numbers. This is business planning. Business life, so bucket list first, business life second, then numbers, what I want it to look like. Three, what services and or products do I want to sell and deliver or the company? And in my career up to that point in time, I'd worked out there'd been over 20 different revenue streams in my career to the same marketplace. 20 different products or services. And I go, well, that's hard work. And let's just pick one. So I picked the one I hadn't done for a few years, which was the coaching business. I'm going to reboot the coaching business, which I closed down a few years prior because we're into software. And I'm going to do it in the USA and Canada. And so I'm going to coach accounting firms in the USA and Canada, but only 64 at a time, maximum. So services, ours end up being one, and it's still one. Question four. What do I want my culture to look like? People, team, environment, you know, you know, behaviors. And one of the things I wrote down was virtual culture, no office. Uh, I don't know whether we're on video here, but if we are, we're inside my clubhouse. I built a golf course in my, in my yard. Uh, I own the world's best backyard golf course. Just Google that, folks. The world's best backyard golf course. You'll find Yarraval. I'm in the clubhouse. This is my place of work. The rest of my team are dispersed everywhere. So, so culture, number four. Then number five, who do I want my clients to be? Now, I knew they were going to be accounting firms, but they, they couldn't be on the hot list, of course, from a cold start. They needed to be, and then I said, okay, I only, I only want a specific type of accounting firm. And I, I designed a criteria of ideal A-class client. And back then, it was between 500 grand and 5 million revenue. Now, it's between 1 and 10. It's always been 1 to 5 partners, always been coachable and ambitious. So I'm looking for the ones that want to grow. This is before I've sent an email, created a pitch. There's no website. There's nothing, right? So I've filled my blank sheet of paper with the questions at the top and the answers below, and the answers below became the business rules, the business rules before we got started. This is business by design. Business by design starts with one, 
what do I want my business life to look like? Two, numbers. Three, uh, services. Four, culture. Five, clients. Clients come last. I come first. I come first. I'm taking the risk. Business owners take the risk. You know, it's our signature on the credit card. It's our signature on the lease. We're the ones that get sued. Every team member will leave us. We're the ones left. So if that's the case, why should I put the client first? Because they'll leave as well. I'll put me first because this business should enrich my life first. I'm the risk taker. So business by design goes one through five. Business by default goes five through one. Let's just get started. Got all these clients, right? Oh, well, we need to hire some people. Oh, you'll do. Uh, services, I'm going to do this, do that, right? Invent, oh, new ideas, right? Our numbers suck and life isn't good. And how many times do we see that? You know, I've been working with, uh, I've been in business over 30 years and I've met so many business, not just accountants, but entrepreneurs. They're just crazy busy, not having a good life. And it's like others rule their world, clients and team members and government agencies and they rule their world. I didn't want that. So that was the first step, Bob. Like, again, I could listen to you all day. And I would say, you know, part of the benefit of you, one, you had all this knowledge and experience at this point. This is not something that people think of when they're getting started in their business. You know, they're thinking about scarcity. They're thinking about paying their bills. They're thinking about that you know, $30,000 a month debt obligation, uh, first and foremost, and saying, how the hell can we figure this out? It's just, it's all cash, 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 right? Yeah. And, and, and they'll do a money grab. They'll do a money grab. They'll, they'll accept a client, sell a product or service that is not in line with what they really want. And guess what happens? You end up stuck in that area. And by the way, uh, previously, Bob, guilty as charged on all of that. Guilty as charged. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we, I think we all are. You know, I, I think when we're all starting something out, it might be pure passion and excitement about what it is that we're getting involved in. It might just be financial that you're thinking, oh, you know, this is a high demand product service, whatever that looks like. And that's the excitement and maybe that's the draw. But suddenly you find yourself going, you're doing all things for all people. You're right. You know, you bring somebody in. I know during COVID, a lot of people were essentially hiring anyone who had a heartbeat which was not by design. It was out of necessity to survive. And yeah, I think the reflection of going, man, if we all had to do it over again, how would we do it? And I think your process would be a really great starting point for anybody who is starting to build something that they were truly proud of. Or someone who's already got a business and they want to redesign it. The hard part about that is they've got existing baggage to unravel. Existing systems, clients, team members, partners, methods, you know, offices that they may not want in the future. And so the startup uh, is easier on the blank sheet of paper. The existing business is harder. It just takes longer time to unravel. Uh, but if you decide that going forward, your ideal customer or client looks like this, then the hard bit is living up to the rule because you might be in a cash crunch and that customer is going to bring you $20,000, dollars $50,000. Oh, we need that, right? And you end up bringing them on and they're a B or C class client or not even nothing close to an A. And, and then you're stuck with it because you're either chasing shiny objects or the business isn't good enough to say, no, we're, we're not doing that. You know, sorry. Because what we do, Bob, we invite our clients to be clients of ours. We interview them, right? And we, instead, we don't sell to them. We interview them to see if they're worthy to, to, for us to work with them because it has to be a match, right? So 
but it's the hardest part on the blank sheet of paper five questions is living up to the rules that you write down. And having a hard stop, it, it means it's a no-go if it doesn't meet this criteria. You bet. Uh, so as a result of that, every single week with that file, this week's one was from the Middle East, uh, we turn away prospective clients because they don't fit the box. Because if we find, if we go backwards, right? If, if we've got a great client base, all A-class clients, they and we've got a great team, so that's five, right? A great team that they interact with and a great product, uh, service, or whatever it is, and you're charging, pricing it appropriately, numbers, then the owners will have a good life. It starts one through five designing it and then being belligerent about following through on the rules. And so we turn away opportunities every month, like uh, projects, products. We turn away clients, every single prospective clients every week without fail because we've, we've said that no, this is what we're all about. It's very tempting. It's very, and by the way, been tempted many, many times. <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard, and I know we don't do as good a job of with that as we probably should. Where I'm more, I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, someone who likes punishment, but I'm just going. Oh, I just want to help everybody. You know, it's it's not a great mindset for a business owner who's trying to design what that looks like. And so, Bob, one of my stupid things many years ago, my strategy was something for all. Right, trying to help everyone. Right, if you're a, always accounting firms, uh, just because I'm not an accountant, as you probably realise, but just it could be any target market. There happen to be accounting firms, right? So if you're a, back then, the strategy was: if you're a startup, we've got something for you. If you're a small business, we've got something for you. If you're a medium-sized, we've got something for you. If you're a multinational, international firm, we've got something for you. It was bonkers. So many different product and service offerings, so many different people that because we're trying to help everyone. And no one was getting helped. Yeah. Yeah. And and no one's enjoying their, their time on the journey. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you just can't do it. So with that uh, blank sheet of paper filled, then time to get busy. Bear in mind, I've got no database. I've got no content. I've got no website. I've got nothing. But what I did do, I thought, okay, I'm going to buy some cold lists, databases out of the US. So I bought two databases and on the 28th of May, 2018, which happened to be a, it's a public holiday in the US, if I recall, because I got abuse, right? Cold data. <laughs> and I started emailing the US. Nothing like abusing a cold data list on a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Good start, Rob. Yeah, great start. So the abuse, the abuse, Bob, the abuse. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've had hate mail, just for any listeners, I've had hate mail uh, every month uh, for the last nearly 30 years. Uh, 30 years come December. Uh, hate mail. The most recently, I, one was last week, it was a good one. Uh, I was called a circus act. <laughs> <laughs> Would you celebrate? It's like, great. Yeah, yeah, cool. Lots of people want to pay to come to the circus. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Delete. See you later. Um, so I get busy uh, with cold data, cold outreach. In the month of June 18, I sent 1.2 million emails to the, to the United States, uh, all cold, dead cold. Some of them actually were dead. He died 10 years ago time thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I got enough interest after all the abuse, I got enough interest to have 89 sales meetings in the months of June 18. I closed 19 clients. In the first month, I had a million dollars worth of recurring revenue. 
Boom. Boom. In six months. 90 days. Six months. Yes. 30 days, right? Uh, 30, 32 days. In six 30 months. 30 days. So so just share this as a context. What was your overhead and what were your expenses related to that million dollars in revenue? I, it was currently email distribution and I, I was in the in the house in, in a small, tiny room with a trestle table. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that was, just to yeah. clarify, that was a million dollars of annualized recurring revenue. So it was about 90000 a month in revenue, but contracted as well. So by month six, we'd signed up 56 clients. I had 265 sales meetings in the first six months. I'd closed $3 million worth of annualized recurring revenue, 250 a month, and we're off to the races. Uh, by the way, the website didn't get launched until month four or five. All I had was the day before I hit that first email, I beefed up my LinkedIn profile. There's no content. There was um, some messaging and I'm here to do business and I got myself out of a jam. And not only that, build a business that now, the first six months was hard, yak out, right? I'm, I'm selling on delivery. I had two trips to the United States at that time. Some Australian clients turned up. Uh, wasn't the intention, but we've had Australian clients ever since until two weeks ago. And then, you know, we're away. Uh, we're, we're, we're away. We did the heavy lifting. It's like a like an A380 airplane, right? All the hard work's done in the first five minutes until it gets to altitude or whatever time. The hard work's done. Then it's, then it's coast. So overheads are about uh, 10 to 12% of revenue. Uh, so it's a very high profit business. But I designed in such a way that, you know, in, with leverage, that my work is only about eight to 10 hours a week, you know, so, but it's got high impact. Uh, you know, the success stories we've had have been amazing. It just shows that, you know, once you have that adversity, like being kicked out of your own company, dust yourself off, think hard, get on with it. You know, the sun will rise tomorrow. Uh, the water will find its own course. Life goes on. Uh, I'm still the biggest shareholder in that company with my wife. Uh, so maybe something comes of it. Actually, it was a turning point. And a turning point in my anger period, which was, you know, I can't lose here. Yeah, I'm out of the business. So I've got a one-year restraint, but I can't lose. If I keep my nose clean for a year, at day 366, I can do whatever I want, right? I win. If, I, if they make a success of that company, I win. If they fire the CEO, I win. If it goes broke, I might. And this is my thought pattern. If it goes broke, I might pick it up, pick up the pieces from the insolvency people. I win. I couldn't lose. So once I got my head in the no lose space, that changed my mindset, and away we go. Five and a half years later, it's you know what? It's remarkable. It's a story of resilience and dealing with adversity, but also, you know, and I, and I think inspirational in so many ways, Rob. Where so many people go through the journey, they accumulate knowledge and skills and talent, and they continue to still do the same thing they did and charge the same amount that they did day one, even though they can do things faster, they bring more value, they have more knowledge. And I guarantee you, as good as you are at pretty much everything you do that I watch you do, day one back in your career, when you had eight people show up, you couldn't have done what you did at this transitional time at that point. And that's because of all the knowledge resources and everything that you had available to you, aside from all the work that you did over the previous you know, 20 years that you couldn't touch, but everything in your mind, which was pretty incredible. And thank you for sharing that story. It is, uh, as much as I hate it, I love it at the same time, you know, because I, I felt like I was going through that journey a little bit with you I had a little bit of anger because, you know, a good friend and mentor of mine was being put through this for no reason. And uh, 
challenging, but man, did you ever prove the world wrong? And that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Okay. To transition from this, which is hard to do, I know one of the things that you talk about a lot and and actually even just thinking about it as you're telling your story of your transformation is charging your worth. And I know even when you would have started this new venture as the fresh start, imagining the price that was being charged then versus now, I'm assuming it's continued to go up as you bring more and more value and have more and more testimonials. Can you maybe share your perspective on like price scarcity and how people should charge their worth? Yeah. So so my first learning on pricing was about 30 years ago through Jay Abraham, one of the best marketeers the world has ever seen. And it was a simple quote, which was, it is arrogant in the extreme to dictate to the marketplace what they will buy and how much they will pay. And so when you break that down, it means that you should find out what the marketplace, what the research is, what they're prepared to buy. And secondly, let them tell you, not by verbally how much your thing is worth, but with their credit card or you know, payment method. And, and, and don't hold on. So this is a context, right? And I'll tell you some stories. Don't hold on to what you believe the thing is worth. You are worth, your team is worth, the product is worth. Let's put it out there, repackage it, reposition it, and let the marketplace tell us, based on sales and conversion rate, what they're prepared to pay. Because the marketplace is the only determiner of your price. So that's the context, right? So let me give you a couple of stories about uh, that. When I was in the when I was last employee, general manager when I was 30, uh, we had a product pack. And the product pack was $33,000. And so we had a conversion rate of 78% on thirty-three grand for qualified prospects. I had to report in US dollars to the US company and the fun- like, you cannot make this up, right? The financial controller of the day said, Rob, you need to readjust your pricing to $44,000 because of the US Australian conversion rate. Your numbers look bad on my reports. I said, sorry? She says, you need to increase the price to 44000 so that you've got parity based on the conversion rate of Aussie dollar to US dollar on my reports. I said, you've got to be effing kidding me. We're getting 78%. And so here's the seller, right? We're getting 78% conversion rate on 33%. And you want me to adjust my price to 44 grand just so your reports look good? And she said, yes. <laughs> I cannot believe this, right? And so I grappled with this for about two months. Then, and this was the kicker. I got this little spreadsheet from one of the other general managers and it said, you could afford to have a 56% conversion rate on the new price and still make the same money. And I looked at this little spreadsheet and I thought, nah, we're better than that. We're better than 56%. And for no reason other than this report, I bumped the price to 44 grand. 11 grand, straight increase, same product, no change. What happened to the conversion rate, do you think? Oh, Rob, you're going to tell me it went up. To 81%. And we sold that year 99 of those product kits, didn't quite get 100, with an 11,000 increase. That was over a million dollars new free profit because the marketplace said it's worth more than what we thought it was. Incredible, right? And, and it's been time and time and time again that living under that context, arrogant in the extreme, let the marketplace, and you let the marketplace decide, you put it, you think you've got an idea, right? Let's put it out there at that price, right? 
They buy it. Measure conversion rate. Test and measure. Test and measure. Measure conversion rate. And then, well, let's just put it up and see what happens. And they put it up and it's still the same. Well, okay. Test and measure. Test and measure. Maybe it's better positioning. I don't know. Let's put it up again. And again, again, and again. So, for example, last five years, uh, my price for essentially the same product has gone up two and a half times. And when I went into the market on, you know, number question two numbers, the, the numbers were I wanted to pitch it at the most premium price the market's ever seen five and a half years ago, more than anyone else I knew, but at least double then. Now we're two and a half times that. And the conversion rate, get this, the conversion rate has been identical. The same 28% for a qualified marketing qualified lead, because we say no to a third, a third typically aren't ready, and a third, about a third say yes. It's been the same, so go figure. Yeah, and I, I see tons of that exact same story, and I know Hormozzi in his $100 million, I think, leads book, he talks about pricing scarcity, and it's all the same, right? It's, let's not sell it for what we think it's worth. Let's understand the value that the marketplace sees in it and then price it accordingly and probably test, right? Like how much, how often have you gone back through and said, you know what, I, I we just got to test this out and see what happens? Yeah, all the time. Test and measure the whole time. And, and if you're an existing business, you know, the fastest way to new profitability is a price increase. It's straight maths. Like that story, 56% versus 78. If you, you, you can afford... You know, when you and maybe Bob with your your firm to to prospects or clients, you work it out simple spreadsheet and maths, right? Your product is this, your gross margin is that. If you increase and your conversion rate is this, if you increase the price by that, of course, if you get a same conversion rate, a hundred percent of the increase goes straight to the top, straight to the bottom. Uh, but maybe you won't get the same conversion rate. But then you can work out well, what could the ver- conversion rate drop to? to make the same money. Or, another way to think about it, and let's use a million dollars of revenue and 20%, right? Simple maths, right? So a million dollars of revenue now, 20% increase, 1.2. Let's say you you could then either afford a drop in conversion rate or a drop in customer count and still make the same money. Yeah, do do 80% of the work, make more money. Get more capacity, Yeah, right? To, to sell more at a high margin and boom, all of a sudden you're doubling profit. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. And pricing is one of my favorite things to talk about because it is all pure profit it's all pure when profit. you get down to it at the end of the day. And, you know, for anybody who's listening, you know, one of those, I have so many different, you know, construction companies and tradespeople who are out there and their schedules are full and they're trying to price, but they're trying to, you know, price compete. It's like, guys, your schedule is booked out for six months. Who cares if your conversion drops? You know, double the price. Obviously, if you're busy, you're either really good and high in demand or the marketplace is just so high in demand that people are willing to pay for that. Test it. Try it out. Here's an example. I was playing golf in uh, Nova Scotia back in September uh, and uh, with a playing partner, what do you do, what do you do? And I helped my my son out. Uh, We're building, I can't remember they're building, they're building something. And he said, uh, he's so busy, he stopped answering the phone. I said, what do you mean? He said, the phone continually ans- rings. He doesn't answer the phone. I said, what? Just doesn't accept the business. Yeah, he's 100% busy, right? I said, oh, okay. Uh, what does he charge? Oh, $45 an hour. <laughs> it's like, no wonder you're so busy, mate, right? You're so inexpensive. 
You could charge in that case. I don't know what he was building. Who cares, right? But he could he could charge a hundred an hour, double it, and he could shed some of the customers, but make double quadruple the profit. And and probably the shitty customers, shed the shitty customers who are going to be super price sensitive and probably on your ass all the time as well. You know, by design, time and time again. Yeah, and and, and it's also to to justify the first first of all. The first sale is to yourself. Do you believe the thing or the team, the service or the product is worth it? That's the first sale. Uh, then you test and measure, but also you can add in what's called soft dollar options. You know, ambience of the um, customer experience is a soft dollar option. Costs you nothing, but the customer feels better. A, a, a pre and post phone call, uh, just checking in, you got it. Just checking in, it's okay. How's it going? Ambience of the customer experience justifies it's a soft dollar option, costs you nothing, uh, other than five minutes of labor, you know, to justify the price because the product, the customer experience is better and they're prepared to more, pay more for it. It's, it's the little things. I go back to my customer service days, right? It's the little things that make the profound difference to justify a higher price. But the first sell is to yourself. Get the mirror. Can you say it straight face? The fee is $50,000. Or are you going to say it, the fee is $5,000, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a Dan Kennedy line, right? You, yeah. Uh, charge as high a price as you can until you crack a smile. Yeah. You know, where you can't even take yourself seriously. That's right, exactly. I like that. But also with abundance versus scarcity, and this is a kicker. Talked about business by design before, which was often you'll just take anything that comes through the door, right? If, if say, the breathing and the credit card works, you're a good customer, right? But if you've got an abundance mentality then it doesn't matter if they say no. If they say no, so what? Every no you get is closer to a yes. They will say yes. And so and with a scarcity mentality, you accept anything, sell anything at whatever price, just for volume, an abundance mentality goes, you know what? There's a better one around the corner. There's a better customer around the corner. Uh, I'm going to keep marketing. I'm going to keep selling. I'm going to find my perfect future fit customer, and I'll say no to the rest. And they're going to pay this. And if you can do that with uh, 10% overhead costs at the same time, you know, you're in a pretty good situation. <laughs> it's a little bit more now because I've got some payroll, but it's not much more. So it's a bit. Oh, geez. Yeah, it's a tough. It's a, it's a tough overhead cost to cover. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you again. I'm so grateful for you, uh, not only for being here, for your coaching, your mentorship, and your friendship. Guys, this has been The Wealthy Entrepreneur. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. If you liked it, Make sure you're sharing it with somebody who you know it will value. Leave a comment, post questions. Make sure you subscribe so you can check out next week. Guys, this has been The Wealthy Entrepreneur. It's been a pleasure to be here. Can't wait to see you next week.